We had a great trip in Nepal. Uh, we, uh, we were really busy. If you're friends with me on Facebook, I did more than just make monkeys mad. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, we, we, as, from the day we got there, we were teaching. Um, Art shared his testimony in a youth group. Uh, one of the, the churches in Kathmandu and Patton, the Patton uh, district, is with the largest church in Nepal. It's got about 2,000 members in it. It's pr- pretty much as big as a church gets. Most churches are around 50, 60 people. And uh, so Art, the fir- uh, first Friday night we were there, shared his testimony in the church, um, and the youth were really moved by that testimony. They were, they were really amazed by it. And then from that point on, they had Art sharing his testimony in every church. And um, we were getting ready to leave Kathmandu on the plane, and Art told me, he's like, yeah, my mom had a dream six or seven years ago that um, I was going to share my testimony uh, around the world. And I was like, well, that was awesome. You should have told me that before we left. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so it just showed that, uh, that, that answer to that dream that uh, God gave to Art's mom. And uh, so they want him to come back in the wintertime. They're doing a huge outreach concert. They do it every two years. Uh, you couldn't really be a public Christian for quite some time in Nepal up until recently. They were actually allowed to do public events and really be Christian in public. And uh, in 2007, uh, Saji and Hannah, the missionaries we work with, they started doing this program called Gloria Deo where they bring in musicians from all over and they held this huge concert at Christmas time. Now, Christmas time in Nepal is nothing, okay. It doesn't mean anything to anybody except for the Christians. Um, And... uh, so it's, so it's not a big event, but they, they'll, they'll rent out an outdoor venue and have it full because they have all this Christmas carols and Christmas music, sharing of testimony, sharing of the gospel. And uh, they'll have thousands of people come from Nepal because they're like, they all want to see what's going on and listen to music and everything like that. So this year they're planning on televising it across Nepal. So they want Art to come back and share his testimony for that. So we'll see if, that, if the Lord makes that happen. Uh, but we also taught in churches. We taught, I taught in the first church I got to teach in was uh, one of the towns that was very badly hit in Nepal. It's one of the oldest cities in the Kathmandu area, Bhaktapur. And the last time I visited there, the pastor and his family were in a tent. And a lot of the church members were in tents. And we prayed with them and talked to them. And so we got to come back and, and uh, encourage them with a message from the word and teach. And then, of course, we did this pastor's conference which uh, was really good. The, uh, man, it was so neat because I go into it going, okay, I'm going to teach some pastors some things. But uh, first of all, just so you guys know, I don't think I'm anybody, like especially like somebody who's worth like, okay, I'm going to teach you something. I, I don't see myself that way at all. But I recognize that God has gifted me with being able to learn some things. So, uh, so anyway, we went and I was praying about it. Pastor Bob, who's in the Sunday Night Bible study next door, he was praying about what to teach, and we kind of been communicating back and forth. Some of these pastors go to seminaries. Some of them have no training whatsoever. They just started up a little Bible study. They came to Christ, started up a little Bible study in their village, and, and they go. But it's not like the way we teach the word here. It's, it, you know, it's pretty much topical. They pick out a passage, teach it. It's not verse by verse or um, chapter upon chapter. So um, anyway, we got a chance to teach them, and uh, one of the things that they loved which next time we're going to do a lot more time devoted to it, was inductive Bible study. Teaching them how to do inductive Bible study, how to, how to do good observation, good interpretation, good application of the word. They were just 
just feasting on that that information. So that was really neat. Uh, and we, we got Bob shared a lot of counseling skills with him. Um, obviously in Nepal, they've got a lot of um, a lot of need for counseling. There's a lot of abuse that happens there as well as uh, just even the the grief from the earthquake. So uh, it was a real time of blessing. And they said next year they want to have it longer. They're like, we want more time next year. So, <laughs> so uh, we'll see if that happens or not. But uh, anyway, so it was a good trip. Thank you so much for your prayers. I'm happy to be back and happy to be with you. Uh, one last announcement before we get into the word tonight. Uh, if you're planning on staying for Easter dinner, can you just write in somewhere on the connection card? Like, if you haven't already turned one in, count count three in for Easter dinner, how many people are planning on coming, and, and turn that into us just so we can plan for how many people will be here, okay? All right, we're in Revelation 17 tonight. We're getting close to the end of Revelation. Oh, man, I, I have wrestled and wrestled with this chapter. In fact, uh, from the time we started teaching Revelation, this was probably one these next two chapters were the chapters that I've really struggled probably with the most in this book. So uh, let's just pray for God's wisdom and we'll, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for your word tonight. We thank you that we can be together as a fellowship. Bless, bless this time. Open up your word to us and teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, uh, one quick question. Is it warm in here? Or is it just me because I'm under the lights? That's no, me? Okay, that's fine. So before I yell at Ben, <laughs> Ben always gets the, turn up the air. Turn up. What's that? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so Revelation 17. So it, it, before we read this chapter, I want to just place it. Chronologically, Revelation 17 and 18 do not fall where they are in the book. Okay, chronologically, Revelation 19, chapter 19, happens after 16. Remember 16, we just went through the seven bold judgments. It was the final judgments upon the earth, and we're all kind of Happy to see judgment. We, just Jesus, come back. We don't want to read about judgments anymore. Although judgments, I think, are important to read about because they, they do make us take account, make us look into our lives, look into our things and say, man, I don't want to face the wrath of God. And praise God due to Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about the wrath of God, but rather I received his grace and his mercy. But, uh, but it's one of those things that I think it is important to recognize that God will bring to justice all the injustice in this world. He, he will make things right. So chapter 19, Jesus' return actually happens after 16. Now, we'll be there in a couple weeks, Jesus' return. But uh, that, that happens in chapter 19. For now, though, we're going to back up a little bit and get a little more detailed into the great tribulation period, the seven-year period of tribulation. Uh, if you remember the way the chrono chronology of events kind of happened from, from a futurist perspective, meaning that we take the book of Revelation as events yet to happen, events future, is we have the letters to the seven churches, and we, we talked about those in, in, in how, they, uh, how they apply to us, but, but also how they apply to the churches in John's day. And then we ended up in heaven, and it was at that point that we talked about that the, the church itself is raptured, taken out before the tribulation actually starts, starts up, before it happens. Once the church is removed... We see a lot of things set up for, for Satan to establish, really kind of take over for a seven-year period. And, of course, at the three-and-a-half-year period, we see the beast, the Antichrist, 
make himself known and want worship of himself, demand worship of himself. And we, we already saw that, that anyone who did not worship the beast or the Antichrist, he, they were killed. And so we've, we've seen this progression of events. Well, in Revelation chapter 17, we're going to see what, what set the beast up for his worship. And it's the great prostitute, Babylon. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1 and read this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth, earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not. It is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And then the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one, one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages and the ten horns that you saw, they, are the, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. May God have his blessing in the reading of his word. So... As we read this chapter, we have a lot of is and was and is not. And then uh, we have the seven, the seven hills. And then, of course, the eighth who belongs to the seven. So we're going we're gonna to start unpacking this chapter. First thing I, but we, that we need to talk about is uh, Babylon. What is Babylon? Now, Babylon in Scripture always is a world system in opposition to God. And there's two parts to Babylon. There's a political power, a military might that we see in Scripture that God uses for judgment. But then there's another, another side of Babylon 
that is a religious, uh, uh, ecclesiastical center that promotes false religion and world religions. If you remember, Babylon got started, in the, in, at least with the Bible, in Genesis chapter 10. And you can turn there real fast to Genesis 10. We read about a guy named Nimrod. It's a real short passage. Genesis chapter 10. And we read uh, that Nimrod, uh, let's go to <coughs> verse 9, or sorry, verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And we, we can stop there. So Nimrod, this mighty man, the first one around, and, and it's not really, in the Old Testament when it says something like a mighty man or someone before the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean they were for the Lord or doing something unto the Lord. It just means that in, in a sense you get this idea that he's actually in opposition to the Lord. Um, but here's what he's doing. Here Nimrod, this mighty man, this mighty hunter, he's establishing a kingdom and the kingdom is Babel. And we, we find out later that Babel, Babel they decide they're going to build up a tower to, the, to heaven that they can ascend to the heavens and become like God. That's part of the ancient religion of Babylon. Well, Nimrod married, uh, married his wife. Uh, his wife's name was, I'm sorry, i got to turn up my brightness here. There we go. Uh, his wife's name was Simaranus, and she had a son named Tammuz. And, uh, of course, it said that she was conceived by a sunbeam. And then, uh, so she had a virgin birth, basically. And then this son eventually died, and for 40 days everybody wept and welled, and the son came back to life. And here, right at the very beginning, you have Satan doing counterfeit things to what God is doing. Babylon is always set up as a is a foreign religion, foreign idols. In fact, I believe, this is just my theory, but I, I think if you start chasing things down, you can almost chase down every single false religion in this world back to Babylon. I kid you not. When you start looking into this, you'll be blown away by how many things go back to ancient Babylon and how they have their roots right there in ancient Babylon. It's a city set up against the worship of God. Now, we are all designed to worship. It's part, of our, it's part of our makeup. It's how God has created us. We've been created in God's image. We desire to worship God. God has created us that way. Of course, some evangelists and preachers have talked about you have a God-shaped hole in your heart and only God fits into that position. I, I always think of my, my kids when they were young and they had the shapes where, you know, the circle and the star and only the star block would fit in the thing. And somehow the kid always figured out a way to fit the square and the star and it got stuck, you know. Anyway. But, um, but we have this desire to worship. God has created us that way. And when we don't worship the true living God, we begin to worship idols. And other things we set up, set up as, as worthy of our worship. There is no such thing as a true atheist. I'll just tell you that right now. Anyone who says they're an atheist, they're just playing games. Because I'll tell you, they're already robbing from the Christian worldview when they say they love people or they love their children, they love their spouse. That's robbing from your worldview and my worldview. And we can get into that later. But there is no true atheist. Everybody worships something. It's just a part of who we are. 
And, uh, and some, some people worship themselves, you know, some people worship money, you know, whatever they make their God out to be. But Babylon is always seen as a nation. There's two great cities always mentioned in the Bible. The number one city always mentioned in the Bible is what? Jerusalem, okay. Jerusalem is the number one city always mentioned in the Bible, okay. Second city right behind it is Babylon. And Jerusalem is often referred to as Babylon when they're rebellious or starting to worship idols and these sorts of things. And in fact, this idea of harlotry and prostituting themselves out, this goes back to the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. I'm having, there we go. Jeremiah 3 and uh, verse 6. It says, this, Jeremiah is given this message to, to take to Israel. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore, because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in, presence declare, uh, but in pretense declares the Lord. So... In the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God is, Israel is supposed to be figuratively God's wife. Devoted to him. Set apart for him. And I think this is a great image for us to understand how important. And of course, those of you who are single may not totally understand it. But when you marry someone, this symbol, this ring on the finger is a symbol to everybody else in the world. That you belong to someone and no one else. That's what that ring symbolizes. It says that I belong to my spouse and to them alone and to no one else. And, and that's why having uh, fidelity within a marriage is so important. So we can see the illustration when Israel is supposed to be God's wife, set apart to God, belonging to him alone. Their worship is only to be to the living God and to no other God. Yet when they start to worship other gods on the high places, start to worship trees, carved or things carved out of trees, stones, things carved out of stones, this is considered adultery to God. It's considered a, a harlotry, whoredom. In fact, the book of Hosea, the entire book is an illustration. Hosea is told to go out, marry an unfaithful wife. He marries this wife and and, and she, she goes out and she becomes actually enslaved as a prostitute. And he goes and he buys her back. And it's this imagery of how God's going to redeem Israel to himself. So when we look at this, this idea of, in Revelation 17 here of the great prostitute and the beast, what we're seeing is that this person it has an image that looks like something good that worships God. But it's actually a, a prostitute. It's leading people away. It, it's, not, it's not bringing about truth and true religion. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have come, committed sexual immorality, 
and with wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Power is always comes in two forms. You have power as far as political and power as far as religious. And we've seen this. And by the way, uh, tonight as we talk about some of these things that are going on in our world and, and have gone on, I make, I'm not going to defend church history. Because I think church history is not the mark of a church led by the Holy Spirit who loves the word of God. I think church history is full of those who are twist and corrupted and they get into the church and they want to exercise power. They want to capture that power. In fact, we saw that in the dark ages. We see how the papacy took over and we've seen what they did with the indulgences and so on and how they abused the people. In fact, eventually the papacy split into two places. You had one in Rome and you had a pope in in France and and it became too much taxes for everybody. They couldn't keep up with it. So they, the, the, uh, they had to figure out a way to condense it down to one pope at that time. But we've seen throughout history when men turn away from the spirit of God, when they start worship, looking for power and looking to, to create their own religion and their own image, it looks close to the real thing, but it's not. It's very far from it. And, uh, and so when we get into tonight, I hope you're not offended. Uh, it's a tough chapter, especially when we talk about false religions in this world, but uh, it's an important one nonetheless. Notice what these kings do. The kings themselves are drunk on the wine. They all want favor with the prostitute sitting on the beast. And then it says the people of the earth, they're drunk with what she had, her wine. You know, have we seen that in our day where people actually just become drunk on something? Like it's almost like the rest of us sitting on the outside go, that doesn't make sense. Why, are, why is everybody approving of this? We're sitting on the outside going, that, that doesn't make sense at all. And, and what ends up happening is, is you and I, as far as Bible-believing Christians, we're marginalized. We're put on the outside and said, okay, you guys are crazy. The rest of the world is saying, no, this is great. They become drunk on it. They become drunk on the ideas. And, and biblical Christianity becomes an obstacle for everyone else. Biblical Christians become in the way. Man, if we could just move out those biblical Christians, those, those evangelicals, if we could just get them out of the way, then we could really move forward in, in, in our country, in, in our status. We can really move on. We don't have to worry about all these, these naysayers about, about trans, uh, you know, equal rights in bathrooms and all these other things that are coming uh, in the news right now. Man, if we could just get rid of the Christians. People get drunk on this stuff. They, they, their, their rationality goes out the window and they just start jumping on the bandwagon. And that's what we, we see here with this prostitute. This woman, she, she's got everybody carried away with her. And I believe she's the, she will be the religion that has taken place of biblical Christianity at the beginning of the tribulation period. She will be the one that falls in there. People will feel really good about her spirituality. I'm sure it will be something that is somehow all accepting and everybody's going to go, okay, this is really good. And uh, people get carried away with her. Notice that it says um, uh, she's sitting on the scarlet beast. So we see this woman actually riding in on the, on the scarlet beast that has blasphemous names. Seven heads, ten horns. That's all going back to Gen- Revelation chapter 10. And, of course, Daniel chapter 7, which if you want to find out more about that, go back to Revelation 10 and get the podcast and, and we can, you can look into that. But she's on the same beast, the Antichrist. But she, here she is riding in on it. it. I think in some way 
the beast, the Antichrist is coming in. He's developing his world power. He's not yet taking over assumption of the world at this point in time. But here you have this religion on top of it. And you might even think that the beast is serving the religion when it, when it gets introduced. But we're going to see that flip-flops at the, end of the, in the mid, midpoint in the tribulation period. So the beast is, she's riding on the beast. Notice how she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of sexual immorality. Think about the colors for a minute. Purple and crimson red. Are those important colors in Christendom? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those colors represent seasons. They represent the, the, the of course, the Easter season especially, the purple and crimson. And then are, are, is a cup important in Christianity? Absolutely. From the cup, when Jesus lifted up that cup and said, this is my blood shed for you, take and drink. That communion with Christ, that cup. And so here she has this cup. She's, uh, she, I think she's adorned with jewels. Man, <laughs> again, I think we can look at some of the religious systems in this world and see how they adorn their, their bishops and their priests and all these sorts of things. And uh, I'm not, I'm not, trying to hit, go to blows about this stuff, but I'm just saying I think we should look at this sort of stuff and go, yeah, they have a, 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 a sense of Christianity, but they're not really Christian. Last year the Pope said something very interesting, and I think this is a little bit scary. The Pope last year, now, and, and in context, let me just say what he's saying in context. In context, what Pope, Pope Francis was saying was that we need to be part of the church. Okay, in context, that's what he was trying to drive home. But in his message, he said, it is dangerous for Christians to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is dangerous. There are no free agents. You must come through the church. Now, I believe the church is very important to Christ. I believe we need to be a part of the church. I believe it is very important for every believer to bring their gifts into the church. I believe it's important for fellowship, for prayers, for, for um, serving each other. I mean, Jesus refers to the church as his bride. So, of course it's important. But we never want to replace Christ with the bride. No, no, no. We, we need to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say if you're really part of the true church... It starts with the relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to know Jesus. This, this Pope has said a lot of interesting things, and I think you guys should all keep, keep aware of what he's saying. He keeps coming out saying things that are, that are really anti-biblical. But here's why. In Roman Catholic doctrine, tradition supersedes the word. Okay? So that means that if you have a tradition among the church... The, 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 the papacy has authority over the word of God. That's why at the Council of Trent, they were able to throw in the non-canonical books, the apocryphal books, into the, and say this is part of the Bible now. This is the word of God. It's kind of a response to Martin Luther's Reformation. They, Martin Luther started the Reformation, and they say, well, you know what, we also have these extra books. And they threw them in there. So 
I think that's very dangerous because now you, you have a system where there's a, a man who's an authority over the scriptures. We don't believe that as, as evangelical Christians. As evangelicals, we believe that the scripture always has authority over me. I'm always subordinate to the scripture. That's why as much as I would love to compromise certain things in our culture, as much as I would love to say, yeah, let's follow along with that. That sounds good. <laughs> Certainly would be less controversial if we just accepted everything. I can't. Because God's word has already stated that something is wrong. There was a church in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, well, actually, there's now a grill in Atlanta, Georgia called the Church of God Grill. And the way it got its name is it started out as a little downtown mission in Atlanta, Georgia. They were, selling ch uh, they were doing church services and selling chicken dinners to, to supplement their income, to, to be able to keep people, the doors open and so on. Well, everybody loved their chicken dinners. In fact, they, it got so popular, they kept having to hold more nights and more nights and more nights while they were selling chicken dinners. Well, eventually, people weren't coming so much for church, they were coming just for chicken dinners. So they just shut down the whole church and kept the name Church of God Grill. Atlanta, Georgia. And so if you, if you go to Atlanta, Georgia, or Georgia, you can find a chicken dinner at the Church of God Atlanta Grill. And they're real proud of how they got started. But to me, it's kind of a sad statement. It's missing the mark of what the point of the church really was. It's, it's deviating. It's getting off track. They're supposed to be feeding people spiritually, not just feeding their bellies physically. See, you can look great on the outside. You can look well worked out and excellent, kind of like me. No, just kidding. <laughs> you can look great on the outside. You can look very fit, well taken care of. But, but is your soul well taken care of? Or are you emaciated and starving because you're not ever feeding on the word of God? I think that's an important question to ask. What is our purpose as a church Certainly not to gather people to ourselves. And that's what this, this is. So the woman comes in writing. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet, holding this cup. On her forehead is written a name, Babylon the Great, mother of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes earth and earth's abominations. This again is how God sees her. Okay. Sometimes we don't see things the way God sees, sees them, do we? Sometimes the way we see things is, is it really that bad? You know, we'll look at something and say, is it really that bad? But when God looks at it and we read in the word, God says, no, this is an abomination. This is, this is whoredom. This is the worst of filth. This is terrible. And we go, man, what's wrong with me? Why don't I see it that bad? And that's the challenge to you as a Christian, to start seeing things the way God sees them. Because God is not lacking in love. God is not lacking in mercy or grace. Certainly he has he abounds more in love than I could ever abound because he certainly loves more people than I love. He, he can offer grace upon grace upon grace. He gives mercy to those who desire it. God is, you can't exhaust his love. Mine you can. So knowing that about God, why am I afraid to see things the way God sees them? I was in uh, Nepal, obviously, for the last two weeks, and it was a very different Nepal than the first time I went because uh, before everything was shut down and closed and you couldn't go anywhere. Um, now things are, for the most part, back to normal in the Kathmandu area. And uh, they, uh, 
their worship has started back up of all their gods and things like that. But by the way, I will say this, Christianity is growing in Nepal. They've had a lot more baptisms since the earthquake. And a part of that is that they've seen the way Christians have responded. I'm so pleased with that. That's one of our prayers. We've been praying for that. But we see the church growing. And, and it's very young in Nepal. 1951, it was made legal for missionaries to come in for the first time. 1991, you could actually preach openly, but you could still be arrested. Um, it just depended on. So it's very young in, in Nepal. Well, we were there on Tuesday night, the night of, uh, uh, it's called Shiva's night. Um, Sh- Shiva, I can't say it in Nepali. But anyway, Shiva is uh, the, one of the main gods in Hinduism. They have millions of gods. In fact, when you speak to a Hindu about, Hindu about Jesus Christ, they'll say, okay, I'll accept him. And they just put him up with all their other gods. You know, so you really have to explain that he needs to replace all your other gods. But it was the night of Shiva. Shiva's the destroyer. And Shiva's one of the main gods you pray to. In fact, if you ever see an image with two eyes, kind of angry eyes, that's Shiva. That's the god Shiva. And you'll see it a lot in America in the sense of uh, you'll see it in New Age stuff and whatnot. You'll, you'll see the Hinduism coming out and that sort of stuff. Well, anyway, on this night, all the sadhus, the priests come into this town. And, and they've been living out in the wilderness for the whole year. They, they usually go, go places barefoot. In fact, it's good luck if you lick a sadhu's foot. Um, <laughs> who wants to jump in on that one? <laughs> Especially if you've seen Nepal. <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, the, they, they all come in to the temple on the river there because it's one of their holy rivers. And uh, the temple hands out free ganja, free marijuana. And everybody smokes out. Everybody gets super high. In fact, they told us to be really careful on the streets that night because everybody's high. Um, everybody gets super high, and you can smell it everywhere. I mean, uh, Art and I were, were, were laughing about it. It's like, this is crazy. It's the only, only religion in the world where a homeless uh, pothead is considered holy, you know. It's like, so <laughs> anyway, the, these priests all come in. They, everybody smokes out. They worship a giant phallic symbol, okay. It's a stone. I mean, they, they had a huge one out there, and everybody worships it, and they, they put their stuff on it, and they're really excited to worship, um, you know, phallic symbols. And, uh, and that's how they celebrate the whole night, with bonfires, smoking pot, and worshiping phallic symbols. Okay. And, you know, in, in our culture, you'll have people say, oh, man, Hinduism is so beautiful. So wonderful. You know. We need to see things the way God sees them. God's not going to call that wonderful worshiping an idol. Especially the fact that this idol, you're only worshiping him because you're afraid he's going to destroy you. Versus God, we worship because he loves us. And he saved us. It's a big difference on why we worship. So God sees this woman. I, I need to hurry up. I'm sorry. I'm going a little slow tonight. <laughs> Apologize. I'm trying to keep my thoughts straight. God sees this woman. He sees her as the the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And uh, she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs. So this, this world religion that's going to come in is certainly going to persecute anyone who wants to follow Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. And we, we always, we've seen that still to this day. We see churches that say they're Christian but want to persecute evangelical Christians or Christians that hold to the word of God. 
So when I saw her, I marveled greatly. I love this. John Caesar on the beast. And now he's, he's already seen everything that's previously happened in Revelation. Now the angel's showing him this. And he's kind of marveling. He's like, whoa, this, this woman is riding on the beast. And he's not sure about what's going on. And he's kind of taken aback by her power and who she is. And, and I love how the angel says, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast. Like the angel's like, there's nothing to marvel about this lady. In fact, all you're going to see is her destruction. So the beast has, I, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers uh, on, on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Remember we talked about the revived Roman Empire in chapter 10. That this the Roman Empire, is gonna, this empire, world empire is going to come back, and uh, and people are going to marvel at it, and they're going to marvel at the, the this religion. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Now, seven mountains. Let me just uh, real fast talk about that. Seven mountains uh, often refer to Rome. You have the city on seven hills. That's kind of a Roman thing. But I think it also when you break down those kingdoms that have to do with Israel, there's been well will be seven, I should say. You have first Egypt, you have Babylonia, you have the Medo-Persia, you have Greece, you have um, Assyrian, then you have the Roman Empire, and then of course the, the, that empire that the beast is going to establish, the revived Roman Empire. So you have those seven empires that are, that are, gonna, that are taking over. So you have the seven hills and seven, seven empires. Um, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, remember we, we talked about that with Daniel, these, these um, seven heads, the, the kingdoms that have come before. And then, of course, we have the little horn replacing the two, two other horns. Uh, if, you, if you don't remember all this stuff, I'm sorry I'm going so fast, but we're gonna, you can go back to Revelation 10 and, and, uh, and learn about that. As for the beast that, I'm sorry, Revelation 13. Um, as for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven. So the beast comes out of the seven, but he's actually an eighth, but he belongs to the seven. So that's the little horn replacing the two, the two other horns. That's the Antichrist takes the place of that. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for the hour together with the beast. So there's going to be ten world powers, ten, ten kings Ten authorities of political power that are going to have this alliance with the beast. And what are they going to do with their alliance? They're going to overthrow the prostitute. That's what they're going to do in this chapter. So John's, the angel's saying, don't marvel about this woman. Her end is coming. In fact, the, the beast, although she rides in on the beast, what's going to happen is these ten kings, these ten powers are going to overthrow her. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. So these ten kings that come, this, this alliance of superpowers or world power, they come, they give their authority to the beast. And then they'll make war on the lamb. And, they'll con and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. We'll get back to that verse in just one minute. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. What this is telling us is that people from all over the world, every multitude, language, nation, are going to come and drink of this wine. They're going to be part of this world religion. They're all going to come to it. 
And it, it almost seems like, well, how's that going to happen? How's this going to be possible? Well, I think it's probably more possible than you think when people start really getting together and, and, and you start compromising in religion. I, I met a man uh, in uh, Patton Square. We, uh, last day we were there, I took Art over to Patton Square. It's a famous area with uh, a palace and, and uh, different temples. And he was a tour guide. And he wanted me to hire him. And so we were talking, and he came up to me and he started talking to me about how this ancient city is so full of Buddhism, and it's wonderful and great. And I said, uh, oh, are, are you a Buddhist? And he said, oh, no, I'm everything. I'm like, well, you can't be everything. You can't be both a Hindu and a Buddhist. Uh, he's like, well, actually, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I'm like, oh, you're a Christian. He's like, but I'm also a Hindu and a Buddhist. And, and so as I was talking to him, I said, like, you can't be a Christian and be a Hindu and a Buddhist because of what Jesus Christ said. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Right there, Jesus said, there's no other way. You're either going to worship me or you're going to worship Satan. You're going to worship Babylon. You're going to worship all these world religions, but not me, because I'm, I'm it. I'm the only way. And so I, anyway, I, I didn't go into that powerful with him, but I did say that to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm like, well, you really should think about that before you tell other people that I'm also this and also that. I, I think he thinks he's a Christian, but, but I know he took us to uh, different shops, uh, a shop with uh, art from the Tonka school where they're making all this Buddhist art and they want us to buy stuff. And I was like, I can't buy anything in here. I'm a Christian. There's no way I'm going to buy any of this false idol, idolatry, this meditation stuff. No way. So then he took us to this other shop on the tour where they take these bowls and they, they make sounds and they bring them up and down your chakra centers and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, again, I'm not going to buy any of this sort of stuff. In fact, the guy brought this bowl up to my head. I was like looking like, what's going on? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, you need to meditate. I'm like, that's not happening. So then he's like, and then he picks up this other bowl, and he said, this is good for healing women. And he, he makes a sound with it, and he holds it to Art, and I just started laughing. <laughs> so Art may have a baby. I don't know. So <laughs> anyway. But uh, here you have this guy saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm also worshiping everything else. I don't think it's that hard to believe that eventually, once the Christians are out of the way, once this world goes through this catastrophe, that one world religion will emerge. And you're going to start seeing everybody come in. Okay, I need to end. I'm sorry. Let, all right, we'll just look at this last verse here. 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who with him are called and chosen and faithful. The audacity of the people and the kings of the earth to say, we've actually got enough firepower to fight God. It's crazy. Maybe they don't mean it in that way. Maybe they don't mean it in a physical battle. Maybe they mean God's dead. Or they're going to kill off the idea of God or Jesus Christ. I, I don't know exactly what they mean. But whatever it is, they think they're going to just destroy God. There's a lot of people over the course of history who have tried to destroy God. Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Karl Marx knew that religion was necessary and important to people. So he said, hey, just let them worship the state. Let the state replace God. That's what you need to do. I don't know exactly how these kings are going to come about it, but here's what I do know. The lamb will conquer them. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. That is it. In fact, when he comes in Revelation 19, we're going to just see him speak 
and everybody done. That's the power of Jesus Christ. Here's my charge to you, church. I, I know this was kind of a, a tough study. It was very like, uh, and maybe some of you were trying to figure out what I was talking about. I don't know. But here's my charge to you. Hold fast to the truth. What is the truth? What's the word of God? It's right here. Hold fast to this. Don't make excuses. Don't try to defend God. He'll defend himself. You just hold fast to this. You, you trust in his word. And, and if you're saying, well, it's a big book. I'm not sure about reading it. Listen, this is how you're going to get to know Jesus Christ. Right here, this book. My charge to you is if you want to know that you're holding to the one true faith, you read it. You, you learn about Christ. You have, walk with him. You have a relationship with him. Art uh, was sharing with the, at a worship night in Nepal. We had a big group turn out, and he said uh, he was sharing about his story and his testimony about coming to know Christ. But one of the things he, he was sharing with everybody was that if I have a good friend, eventually I'm going to joke like my friend and talk like my friend, and hang, I wanna, I'm going to look more and more like that friend because I'm hanging out with him all the time. That's the way it is with Jesus Christ. The more I hang out with him, the, the more time I spend with him, the more I look like him. Look like Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the truth. That's what the world needs. It doesn't need more social programs. It needs Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, dear God, that you will conquer all. Lord, these false religions that try to bring some hope but have nothing to offer. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, that you give us truth at that cross. You save us. You redeem us. You set our feet upon the rock, which is you. And we just thank you so much for that, Lord. Lord, help us be faithful to your, your truth, to your scriptures. And uh, we just thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.